Well, hello, church family. We start a new series today entitled Through Mountains and Valleys. And essentially, we're going to be looking at the Christian life in two different places, mountaintop high experiences and then the sort of low in the valley experiences. And the scriptures give us wisdom and insights on how to navigate both of those terrains. And so for this first week, we're going to start off with one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. It's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now, let's give some context to the story before we get into the heart of it. The context for the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal begins in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. It says this, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Abraham the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light of a thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So, basically an introduction there's this king, Ahab. The scriptures are saying he's the most evil king in all of Israel. He takes uh, Jezebel as a wife. Jezebel is the daughter of a different king named Ethbaal, which gives us a sort of foreshadow of what's about to take place in the story. Ethbaal has the name of this pagan deity built into it. It means with or under Baal. So, Ahab is serving other gods, he's marrying into families that serve other gods, and then it says in the text that he is building temples and houses to worship Baal in Israel. Now some insight into who Baal is. Baal is one of the deities, pagan gods, that is worshipped by the surrounding people and cultures of ancient Israel. Now, he's a storm god, a rain god. He's often depicted with, with lightning. He's often depicted in the clouds. One of his titles is the one who is riding in the clouds. So when you think of this god, think of lightning, think of fire, think of clouds, think of rain. So that's, that's the sort of backdrop to this story. And then we're introduced to the prophet Elijah. Chapter 17. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain in these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Elijah makes this powerful kind of proclamation. It's a prophetic word. There's going to be zero rain in this land, no more rain. And this is important to note, but this, this, this prophecy is, is a prophetic fulfillment of something that's guaranteed in the Mosaic Covenant. So in Deuteronomy 28, God expounds on a covenant that he makes with ancient Israel. And he says, if you are faithful and you are obedient to me as my sort of covenant people, then I'm going to do a number of things for you. And one of the things that's listed is God will provide rain. So this idea in scriptures is that if Israel as a nation, as a people group, is faithful to God in the land of Israel, he'll provide rain. So clearly, they're worshiping Baal in the land, and there's unfaithfulness, and so there's a removing of that covenant blessing. And Elijah the prophet makes that declaration. And 
the, the king and, and the people surrounding him are so evil that basically God tells Elijah, you have to get out of here, man. Like you need to go into hiding. I'm going to provide a place for you to go into hiding because if you don't, they're going to kill you. They're going to take you out. Now what occurs next is this drought, this lack of rain continues for three years. And Elijah, the prophet, has been in hiding this whole time. All the while, worship of Baal in Israel is growing more and more. And so after three years, Elijah is going to emerge. This begins in chapter 18 of, verse, uh, of 1 Kings, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. A couple important notes. Elijah goes into hiding because these people are, are wicked and evil. They'll kill him. And so when God says, hey, go back and tell Ahab some things, like, you know Elijah has to be thinking, Ahab wants me dead. I mean, what, what would you do if God sent you on a mission where it's like, go do this, and you know what, there's a, a good chance that people there want to kill you. This happens in another story of the Bible. A prophet gets the word of the Lord, and the prophet is told to go preach repentance to a people and to an evil king. And in that time, the prophet doesn't listen. He runs away. He runs the opposite direction. Familiar with the story? It's Jonah, the book of Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He knows they're going to kill him there. He doesn't want those people to find repentance. But Elijah is faithful. Even though he faces consequence and possible death, he's going to go confront Ahab. Now, something important. The text says, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. This may not jump out to us as modern people, but remember, what is Baal the god of? It's the god of storm, of rain, thunder, lightning. In the ancient world, the gods were localized, and they had certain territories, and they had sort of unique powers, if you will. So Baal's the god over rain and storm and thunder, and he's in certain regions. It wasn't a concept like we have of monotheism and omnipresence where this God is everywhere at all places at all times. The deities, the gods, Baal, was localized. He was in certain regions, certain territories, and he had specific authority or power over some things. And the thing he certainly was said to have power over is rain. But yet God is telling Elijah, go back to Israel where these temples to Baal have been constructed. It is in that location that I will show who I am by demonstrating that I am God over all things, including rain and storm. The story goes on. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore... Send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah emerges from hiding and he has this direct confrontation and challenge for the king. And really, it's, it's more than the king. It's the king, the, the queen, the entire political system. It's 450 prophets of Baal, 400, 400 prophets of Asherah. He is going to challenge the whole thing. Elijah 
is going to challenge the entire system. And he's one man. It's like the odds. One man versus the whole system. But in a sense, that's the odds that God likes. Because for Elijah to be successful, the only hope he has is if God shows up and divinely intervenes. It's one man versus the whole system. And Elijah believes that his God will come through. Now this battle, this challenge is going to take place at Mount Carmel. It's a place that means God's vineyard. And there's, there's this kind of irony there in that this is God's vineyard. This should be a place where people know and love and worship the true God, but yet there's false worship to such a degree that this is the very location that Elijah is choosing to make his challenge. Now, verse 20 of chapter 18 goes on. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Elijah's point is like, don't sit on, you can't sit on the fence forever. You either choose the Lord or you choose Baal. And although we may not in our modern context be choosing between two different deities, the point still stands. You can serve God or try and worship God, sort of, or, or partially, or you put your trust in Him in this area, but not in this area. And the word is, no, you have to choose. You can't sit on the fence forever. Whom will you serve? The Lord or Baal? Elijah says, choose whom you're going to serve. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So again, it's a repeating of the odds, if you will. It's me versus all of them. What hope do I have but God? And this is how the challenge is going to work. Verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay on it the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. So do you get how this is working? There's, there's an altar being made. They put a bull on it. And the idea is that fire would come down somehow miraculous, miraculously by the one true God. So the prophets of Baal go first. They're doing their normal ritual. They're doing their normal routine. And they're calling upon Baal to answer, but it's nothing but silence. Verse 27 is interesting. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. You see the sarcasm in all of those things. So it's like, 
No, just keep calling upon your Baal's real. He, of course, he's real. He's probably just musing. It's a weird way to say he's thinking or reflecting on something. So you're not getting his attention. And then he taunts even harder with the sarcasms. Perhaps he is relieving himself. So it's like your your God's on the toilet. Just he, he, let him finish up, and then he'll come. And then he says, or maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So it's this mockery by Elijah the prophet. It goes on in verse 28. And the prophets ball, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, this is a pretty strange section of the scriptures for us, and it gets even weirder here, because the prophets of all begin to take swords and lances, and they cut themselves, so the blood's pouring out of them. And you're like, what's, what's going on with that? So it's this idea that the prophets want to demonstrate the intensity of their faith and obedience to the God. It's like, why aren't you showing up? Maybe if we did something more, maybe if we danced harder, maybe if we prayed harder, maybe if, maybe if we cut ourselves, does this, does this show you, does this demonstrate to you how much we need you to show up in this moment? So it's like a way of bargaining with this deity. Now what's fascinating is, at first that might sound weird to us, but in a, in a sense, this is what we find ourselves doing all the time. Like, we're not cutting our arms before an altar to get Baal to show up. But this idea of bargaining with God is something we're, we're well familiar with. So how many times have you seen yourself saying, God, give me this or please do this for me. And if you do this, I'll do X, Y, Z. God, I need you to come through in this area. And if you do, I'll do this for you. Lord, I promise to be a better Christian if you do this. Lord, if you, if you take this out of my life or maybe bring this into my life, I'll, I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray, all, I'll pray harder. I'll read my Bible longer than I ever have. It's as if God needs something from the finite individual and he's just waiting for you to provide for him so that he might provide back for you. At the heart of that type of prayer is the practice that's going on in this text. So the prophets but all do this. They're midday. There's no response. Then it's Elijah's turn. And the interesting thing that Elijah does is he goes, okay, prepare the altar, put the bowl on it. But you know what? Pour tons of water on it. Go get these four jugs of water and pour it on it. Pour it on it again. He ends up doing this like several times, this pouring of water. And it's as if to say like, if it's drenched in water, there's no way this thing can catch fire at this point. But again, those are the odds that God likes. It's like, there's no earthly human way this is going to work unless God shows up, unless he intervenes. The scene is set. Elijah's altar is prepared. Verse 36 says this, At the time of the offering... Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and you have turned their hearts back. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So you get this miraculous picture. There's no way in this world something here can burn, but fire from heaven comes down. And, and what's the purpose behind all of this? Elijah says he wants the people's hearts to turn back to God. He doesn't want judgment and wrath to fall on his people. He wants them to know the one true living God. And God shows up and it's this incredible mountaintop experience. I mean, think about like the spiritual uh, high in that moment. Like, you can't get any higher than this mountaintop. God himself showed up with power and fire from heaven. If you're Elijah, your faith has to be at an all-time high. Now, that is where the story usually ends. And that, that's fine because all of that is true. But I want to take you a little bit further to see exactly what happens in the next couple chapters. Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, finds out what Elijah has done. And Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah and says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take you out. And so what do you think Elijah does? I don't fear you, Jezebel. I don't fear Ahab. The Lord is God. Uh, I just watched him bring down fire from heaven. No, no, that's not what happens. Chapter 19, verse 3, speaking of Elijah, after he heard that Jezebel wanted him dead, verse 3 says, Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life. And then in verse 4, it tells us that he goes into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord, take away my life? For I am no better than my father's. And he, la he laid down and slept under a broom tree. From a mountain high, fire from heaven, to a very low place, so low that he's saying, Lord, just, just take my life. I'm no better than my father's. I'm in hiding. I've run. Jezebel wants my life. I, I, I just take, take, take me to heaven, Lord. Which in one sense can be discouraging because you're like, man, Elijah, you were like my role model, man. You were faithful to God. You went and, and spoke God's prophetic words to an evil king. And now, and now you're depressed, wanting to die in hiding. But you have to know that this is good news. Elijah is not a superman. Elijah is a lot like us. He's a lot like us. Because you know in this life, one moment you could be the top of the mountain, in another moment, you're sad, you're depressed, you're fearful, you're, you're afraid for your life. After Elijah asked for the Lord to take his life, he goes to sleep under the broom tree. And in verse 5, it says this, And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was... At his head, a cake baked and hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. The journey is too great. And he rose and ate and drank. And with that strength, he went for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
Verse 9 says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and seek my, and they seek my life to take it away. So he's hiding in a cave in the wilderness alone. He doesn't even want to go on anymore. And God says, like, what are you doing? Why are you here? And Elijah tells him what happened. He's like, I'm the last one, Lord. I'm the last person. No one else is faithful to you. And if I'm the last one and all my people have turned away, just let's just call it a day. He's at an all-time low. But listen to what happens next in the text. This is fascinating. Verse 11. And God told him, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, and the rocks fell before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him. And it's God speaking to him once again. Now, what is the big picture going on here? God was with Elijah on the top of the mountain, and he revealed himself with power and glory and fire from heaven. But at the same time, and this is incredibly important to note, God was with Elijah when he's at the low, alone in the wilderness, a cave, in a cave, ready to throw in the towel. And God shows up this time, not in fire from heaven, but in a small whisper. And God is there for Elijah in the mountain and also in the lonely cave. And what happens after this is God reaffirms Elijah's call to ministry. He gives him new orders. He tells them, guess what? You're not the only one left, Elijah. I have saved for myself 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So even though it seemed like you were the only one, Elijah, I am sovereign. I am preserving my people. There is a faithful remnant. You are not the last one. And God demonstrates his presence in the fire, on the mountain, and in the lowest of low, in the lonely cave, in a whisper. Now, why is this incredibly relevant for us in our current situation? Immediately, I think of this year, 2020. Because if you're anything like me, there has been some bright spots, like good things happen. But in 2020, like immediately, always, again and again and again. Anything, anytime something starts to look like it's going good, anytime I get some good news of ministry taking place, then I'm immediately met with something bad happening. And it's certainly been the hardest year of ministry in my entire life. No other year even comes close. And so it's like, even when there's a good thing to celebrate, I ah, just wait for tomorrow, it's gonna go all bad again. 
and I'm, I, I'm sure that many of your life, lives have had experiences like that in the past seven to eight months. You get some type of break, some good news, and then there's just some more bad news. And what's important to note is that God is with us in both situations. He's with us in the mountaintop, and he's with us in the valley. And sometimes he reveals himself in fire from heaven, and sometimes he's revealing himself in a low, quiet whisper. Now, the other thing about this, this, these passages that's important is this idea of fence-sitting. Eliza's challenge to the prophets and to us and to the, the, the people of Israel at that time was, you, you, you have to choose who you're going to serve. You can't have God and Baal. You have to pick one. And for us, that challenge is, is still the same. Who will you serve? You can't say, I, I, I want God like 20% of the time. I'm going to serve God. He's going to be the God of 10% of my life, but I'm going to serve these other things as well. At a certain point, you have to choose who you are going to serve. The third thing coming out of this that's incredibly relevant and important is this idea that Baal was a god that had powers in certain regions and territories, and he had special unique powers to do things. Remember how we started off. Baal had authority and dominion in a certain region, and he was specifically the god of rain, thunder, and storm. And the whole point of this story is God is challenging that very concept. It's like, no, no, it's not as if the God of Israel has only authority and power in Israel, and he has these, these three special powers. He's God and Lord of all, and he can do all things. It's not Baal who brings rain. It's the God of Israel who brings rain. So when you go to God, you have to trust him with the sum total of your life. See, oftentimes we compartmentalize our faith. And what I mean by that is we put certain things in certain boxes and those boxes belong in different, under different authorities in our life. So many Christians, God is their God on Sunday, but when it comes to Monday or Tuesday, there's a different God that they serve. Or they trust God with spiritual things, but they don't trust God with material things. It's like, I trust God on Sundays and with spiritual things, but then the rest of the week looks different and I serve different gods. But what Elijah is saying is, he's the God of all things. And you have to allow his authority and dominion to have place in every single area. All compartments are under his lordship. So the question is, do you trust him with all things? Do you trust him with your kids, with your grandkids, with your marriage? Do you trust him with your singleness? Do you trust him with your money and your possessions? Do you know that he is sovereign over all things? He's not just sovereign over a few things. And this is even more relevant to not just the year 2020, but what's coming in the next few days. We have an election coming up, and it's like this time where there's potential for mass chaos. Half the country's probably going to be happy, half the country's going to be disappointed, and I'm sure online there's going to be a lot of fighting. And that might actually erupt into more and more type of fighting. But you as a Christian have to know something. You are called to trust God over all things. He's not just God of Sunday. He's the God of the whole week. And he's not just Lord over church on Sundays. He's Lord over all things, 
over politics, over all nations. Matthew 28, before Jesus ascends into heaven, his final words to his followers say this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. So yes, 2020 has been a crazy year. And yes, I know many of us are anxious as we go to vote over what can happen politically. But what I want you to know and what I need you to know, that no matter what happens, no matter how 2020 ends, no matter how 2021 begins, Jesus Christ has all authority and he is king and you can trust your life with him. So follow him as he leads you.